Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Thomas Bonomo. He is the Humanist Studies Coordinator with the American Humanist Association. His areas of concern revolve around the influence of religion in politics, U.S.-Middle East relations, conflict prevention and resolution, energy and climate, security and human rights. His writings on these subjects have been published by the Atlantic Council, the National Interest, Securing America's Future, Energy, Forbes, The Cipher Brief, Oil and Gas Investor, Renewable Energy World, The Hill, CQ, Roll Call, and many, many other uh, publications, including The Humanist, uh, where I read an article I want to start with asking about. Uh, Thomas Bonomo, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So I, I uh, was interested in this uh, article that people can find at the, the Humanist website um, uh, from a week or two back called Recognizing the Connection Between National Insecurity and Domestic Repression. Uh, and one might expect that to, to be about uh, financial trade-offs or weapons profits from militarizing the police, but it's a, it's a different sort of connection you're talking about, right? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the basic uh, premise of the, the piece is that um, there's sort of a mutually reinforcing connection between um, national security issues and, you know, particularly, um, you know, insecurity within the realm of foreign policy and a focus specifically on the Middle East and the rise of theocratic elements within the U.S. government um, and then their influence, of course, on domestic policies and repression of uh, reproductive and or advocates of reproductive and sexual rights and uh, the LGBTQ community and religious minorities, including humanists. In other words, the more that uh, foreign policy is is driven by and drives uh, fear, uh, the more right-wing religious uh, policies we're likely to get uh, in in the domestic realm. Right, and uh, I kind of trace that back um, historically to I think it's probably common to human psychology, but I focus on the, the Abrahamic religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and, um, you know, look at specific examples from, you know, the Bible where uh, ancient Israel, for example, you know, when it's facing external threats from, you know, um, other empires, you know, the prophets, you know, rise up and they tend to become, you know, more vocal in their insistence that um, their civilization needs to return to its religious roots. And, you know, people tend to adopt more fundamentalist, you know, black-and-white worldviews in response to the sorts of threats. And, you know, that, of course, in a modern as well as ancient context has implications for, um, you know, social mores and um, laws that, that those societies adopt. Um, so it's a really interesting phenomenon, and I think that, you know, it, it again, continues into the modern day, 
And so I, you know, make the case that, um, you know, the, the argument essentially was that, you know, humanists tend to be more focused on uh, domestic issues, but it's also important to, you know, look outside and be attentive to, um, you know, U.S.'s foreign relations, because in reality, the, you know, the two sides of that are really inseparable. We've so so. What have we seen in the past sixteen years in in which U.S. politics, uh, in, in terms of foreign relations, has been has been dominated by uh, a, a drive for war against uh, countries that are predominantly Muslim and a great deal of demonizing of of Muslims uh, uh, by Christians and by atheists? It must be said. Sure. Um, I mean this really goes back decades and um yeah, I guess you probably trace it back to, you know, several major events, you know, in the nineteen fifties, uh the US was well I'd say after the Second World War in particular, the US became very interested in um securing the oil supplies of the Middle East, you know, and there was a transition of power from the British Empire uh to the US so, um, you know, I think the the common narrative within the U.S. foreign policy establishment is that um, this role was kind of thrust upon the U.S. And I, w- I would agree with that to an extent. I think that, um, you know, we've also, the U.S. has also kind of implemented a number of really short-sighted and self-sabotaging policies in the region. Um I think probably many people would agree to, but, you know, so in any case, after the Second World War, um, the U.S. became heavily involved in the region and um, established, you know, relations, security relationship with the Saudi monarchy. Um, And then, you know, in the mid-1950s, it became involved in, um, you know, the coup plot in Iran in 1953, um, and helped reinstall the, you know, the Shah in power. Um, and then that, you know, his government continued on until 1979. Uh, and it was overthrown in the Islamic Revolution there. And, you know, so that government, you know, the people who led that revolution have continued in power up to the present. And, um, you know, that, that whole history is, you know, certainly a source of very serious tensions between our two countries and um, you know, it appears to be pretty intractable at this point. Uh, and then you also have, you know, the, the whole Cold War context um, and in Afghanistan in particular, the U.S. was involved in supporting some very extreme uh, Islamist militant elements um, in order to combat the Soviets. And, you know, they're very successful in rolling back uh, you know, the Soviet military in Afghanistan. Um, but I think that, you know, again, some very short-sighted decisions were made um, in supporting some of those, those factions, and, you know, they've since become very uh, influential throughout the Muslim world, you know, in part in response to or because of, you know, political and economic instability, you know, some of which is the fault of external powers and some of which is the fault is just, you know, poor governance within those countries, you know, corrupt governance and 
repressive government. No. Yeah, I I I have to say, uh, Thomas Bonomo, where the 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 bit of religious politics in the United States that disturbs me the most lately and uh, and is this was related to your most recent article uh, called Jerusalem Monument to Human Narcissism uh, is this apparent belief by I don't know how many people uh, that by uh, destroying Jerusalem uh, and bringing Jesus back uh, and destroying the world uh, we'll all be, or at least Christians will be, better off. And I saw a, a Trump rally uh, a week ago in Pensacola, Florida, with a state senator from Florida saying that by moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, Trump would bring back Jesus. Uh, and it didn't really mention that this would uh, destroy the world, but that's that's part of the belief, isn't it? Yeah, it's very concerning. Um it's not clear to me, uh, you know, what percentage of Christians, evangelical Christians in particular, um, maintain this belief, but uh, I believe it goes back to a really fascinating book by Victoria Clark um, by the name of Allies for Armageddon, The Rise of Christian Zionism, and it goes through the history of that movement, and I believe she traces it back to the... Uh, 19th century, 19th century England, and so it's, you know, since expanded uh, in the U.S. in particular, and, um, you know, people who hold these beliefs are now very much ascendant within the U.S. government. Um, I think, you know, Mike, Mike Pence is one of them, the vice president, um, CIA director Mike Pompeo, a number of, you know, Senators in Congress, members of both houses of the Congress. Uh, so it's it's very concerning, um, you know, because it doesn't just it, it's not just a passive view of you know what the end of history will entail. It it requires you know Christians active involvement in orchestrating these events in order to bring about the end of the world. You know, so this is the sort of thing that. Um, you know, the U.S. government was very concerned about when uh, the previous Iranian president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, was in power. Um, many people were concerned that he had a, a similar view from, you know, the Muslim uh, eschatological, you know, end times narrative. Um, so there's, of course, a very big difference between believing that at some point these events will occur and believing that, you know, you have, you know, an active role and indeed an obligation to help bring these things about. Um, but it, so, in my view, this really needs, you know, needs to be confronted at all costs. <laughs> it, it seems like a little bit bigger deal than just about all the stories in the news to have someone. Uh, as you say, Mike Pompeo running the CIA, empowered to wage war, believing that bringing about Armageddon in Israel is a good thing to do, uh, and the destruction of the world is desirable, and uh, and talk of moving him to the Pentagon and putting Senator uh, Tom Cotton, uh, whose you know Jesus-related beliefs I don't know in any sort of detail, but who clearly uh, yearns for war with Iran uh, with every 
fiber of his, his being, putting him in in Mike Pompeo's place. Um, it, mm-hmm. it seems like a dis- you know literally disastrous proposal. Yeah, I mean they they certainly have uh, very aggressive views of you know what should be done about Iran, and you know to be precise, I think it's important you know that we don't know exactly what their views are. I mean, um, there is a uh, record out there, you know, in in the public. Uh, and, you know, for example, you can Google up um, a YouTube video in which, you know, Mike Pompeo is addressing, a, you know, a church that's happened, I think, several years ago, and he references the rapture. Um, you know, so what exactly that means in terms of his religious viewpoints, I think, is not entirely clear, but it's you know, certainly concerning. Um, and, you know, I, I would agree that, you know, Iran's foreign policy is highly problematic and it needs to be addressed through uh, a combination of military determined deterrence and diplomacy. Military um, determined what? I'm sorry? I, I think it needs to be addressed through a combination of military deterrence and diplomacy. Uh, I think, you know, they're the record, you know, in terms of Iran's response to um, U.S. efforts to ne- negotiate this nuclear agreement and, you know, on the Syria issue, I think makes pretty clear that, you know, they're not going to respond cooperatively, you know, simply to, um, you know, request for diplomatic engagement. I think, you know, diplomacy obviously is a very important part of that and being willing to negotiate on reasonable terms, but um, you know Iran's foreign policy since at least 1982 has been, you know, to pursue the annihilation of Israel. And I think you know, as what the do you base that on? The moral issue. I think. It, do, you, do you base that on uh, a common mistranslation of a statement by the previous president, or what? No, I mean that's that's a very clear part of the historical record. Um, and they've made that consistently. So you want military uh, threats to Iran as uh, as a as a and, and in a, in an article some weeks back you wanted more weapons to go to terrorists in Syria. I mean, is it, are these humanist positions shared by humanists throughout the United States? Well, I mean, from my personal perspective, there's you know the ideal of. You know, of course, we would all like world peace, um, you know, and then there are fundamental differences between governments that are, you know, shaped by religious views and, um, you know, uh, historical experiences. And, you know, the Iranians, again, have, I think, good reason to be very bitter toward the U.S. Um, or, you know, things that the U.S. has done uh, over the, you know, past several decades, but, um, you know, you also have to ask, is it acceptable that one government should, um, you know, be able to pursue the annihilation of an entire country? And in my view, it's it's not acceptable, and I think that, uh, you know, that needs to be confronted in a way that, you know, again, as with the, the nuclear negotiations, you know, the Obama administration pursued a, you know, kind of um, dual-track strategy, if you want to say, of um, offering to negotiate on, 
you know, what you could call reasonable terms. I think there are many shortcomings to the nuclear agreement. And, you know, in my view, it will have to be renegotiated um, at some point within the next eight years because of some critical flaws in the agreement. Um, but, you know, he also used economic sanctions as his leverage to bring the Iranians to the negotiating table in a serious way. And, you know, they argued, of course, that they wouldn't negotiate under threat and, you know, that's part of the their, you know, propaganda or messaging, um, you know, but their actual behavior demonstrates that, you know, it you know, taught them or, or it um, demonstrated to them that they needed to take a serious position and, you know, that the U.S. wouldn't tolerate additional delaying and would not tolerate Iran um, acquiring nuclear weapons. Now, I don't think anyone should have nuclear weapons myself, but I certainly don't believe that another country or additional countries acquiring nuclear weapons is going to, you know, make the problem any easier to solve. And I think that increases the probability of uh, a nuclear conflict occurring. So it's very complicated, I think. I guess I I would like to know what the steps are that Iran is taking to annihilate Israel. Well, I mean, it's very clearly expanding its military presence in Syria, and, you know, the ultimate purpose of that intervention and that military expansion is to uh, pursue that, that goal. Um... And, you know, they've been very clear and explicit about this for decades. So, it, you know, it shouldn't really come as a surprise. Um, and, and that would be reversed by sending more weapons into Syria based on the experience uh, in Iraq or Afghanistan or Pakistan or where? Um, well, uh, I think that, you know, could form one elements of his strategy to uh, deter Iran from pursuing that goal, but again, I think that it also requires willingness on the part of the U.S. to, you know, negotiate uh, the Israeli-Palestinian issue ultimately on reasonable terms, and, you know, it's very clear that the uh, Israeli settler lobby is, you know, it dominates U.S. policy on that issue. And unfortunately, I think most Americans are pretty unaware of, um, you know, the connections between these issues, and that lobby will, you know, really even deny that there is a connection, um, which is incredibly dishonest. But, uh, you know, I I think that it's going to be very difficult in any case, you know, even if the American public did, um, you know, recognize that connection, and even if they did exert pressure on Congress to engage in direct negotiations with Iran on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, as, you know, the U.S. has done, you know, with the the Arab world, and, you know, the Arab world is, I would say, 2002, um, I believe it was in 2002 that they, Saudi Arabia led this initiative um, that would allow for the, the Arab world, the recognition uh, of Israel, or actually the Arab Muslim world, recognition of Israel, um, if it agreed to a two-state solution and you know, 
divided Jerusalem and came up with a solution to the you know Palestinian refugee issue. Um, so Iran was not part of that, and its you know position on Israel remains you know very much intransigent. Um, so there you know there needs to be again a combination of uh, you know clearly communicated willingness to negotiate on this issue on reasonable terms, and you know there's no guarantee that Iran would reciprocate, but I think it increases the likelihood that more moderate elements within the Iranian government would say, you know, look, why do we want to risk um, the future of our regime, you know, the, the legacy of this revolution on uh, what really, I would, I would argue, amounts to a very unreasonable position, a uh, very one-sided position. So that's my, my own personal view on it. Yeah. Um, the... The article you wrote, uh, Thomas Bonomo, called Jerusalem Monument to Human Narcissism, uh, you really try to downplay the importance of the United States moving its embassy to Jerusalem and calling Jerusalem a capital, um, and yet there have been immediate protests in over a dozen countries uh, just on that announcement, and U.S. State Department personnel have been warned just because of of that announcement. I mean, it seems like a, a very likely path to war. It seems like an embassy that is very likely uh, to be attacked. Um, uh, and yet you sort of defend it with the argument that Israel has the strongest claim to Jerusalem. And I wonder, you know, based on what? Well, I mean, based on the historical record, but of course that is... <laughs> that might makes right, or what? Okay. What, what historical... The, force, well, I mean, uh, force is moral, might makes right? That, that, what's the historical record? Well, I would say the Jewish claim to Jerusalem is, you know, about 3,000 years old, um, and the Muslims' claim to it is much more recent, so there's that aspect of it. So a religious um, national identity uh, created by a bunch of immigrants is a, it takes precedence over the rights of any other humans before or since? That's a humanist position? Well, again, I mean, if if it was up to me, then, you know, this wouldn't be an issue in the first place, but, um, you know, there is the ideal and there is the, you know, pragmatic, uh, you know, imperative of all of this. And, you know, so I think the UN had it right in 1947 when they, you know, passed a resolution that called for, you know, UN... Um, UN maintaining jurisdiction of Jerusalem and you know, enabling everyone to have the right to worship there, but you know, effective sovereignty would remain in the hands of um, not one side or the other. Uh, and I, I think that's really the problem: is that um, too many people and you know, pretty powerful elements of each side want to retain complete sovereignty over all of these religious sites, and, uh, you know, it, it just perpetuates the problem. So, um, you know, but, you know, we're not going to go back to the 1947 resolution, um, 
unless there is a major conflict and it opens up um, <laughs> we can't that make... possibility again, you know, because of the loss of Israeli control over that, that territory. But I don't see it happening. Um, so we, we can't, we can't speaking, make positive changes without a conflict first? No. I mean, realistically, no. It's just not going to happen. But we, but we can you make know, horrible I, changes without a conflict first. I mean, I think it it could be possible. You know, I think if enough Americans um, realize the connection between all these issues and, um, you know, how much worse the situation could get, and, you know, they actually, like, mobilized in time to stop some of these things from happening and uh, pressured Congress to exert economic leverage on Israel. Um, there's, I think, you know, Israel would become very concerned about the um, ten- tenability of its position on this issue, but that's, that's just not going to happen. I mean, I, I don't... I think it's all but inevitable that there is going to be another major conflict um, you know, centered in southern Syria and, uh, you know, Lebanon... And I, I think, unfortunately, it's going to get much worse. I think that's the most likely scenario, unfortunately. So, you're, um, well, you know, you, you, you advocate sending more weapons into Syria and predict that there's going to be an escalated conflict in Syria. It's not a, it's, that's not, you know, rocket science to make that kind of prediction, but uh, it, it's, not, it's not humanism either. Uh, you know, I, I mean, for the United States to take a better approach to Israel... It could simply step out of the way of the United Nations. It could president-elect Trump, uh, you know, trying to sabotage uh, a resolution on uh, settlements in Palestine uh, because President Obama uh, had decided not to veto it for once. Uh, you know, just don't do that. Just get out of the way. Just stop giving yeah. billions of dollars of free weapons every year. I mean, wouldn't that be a remarkable positive change that didn't require a conflict first? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. But again, that's going to require the American public to decide, you know, it, it, we don't want to con- continue down this path. So, you know, I, I mean, I'm kind of I'm making a pretty realistic assessment of, you know, the chances of that happening before another major conflict breaks out, you know, I think, unfortunately, um, you know, again, I agree with you, and I, I wish that that would happen, but I think the American people, you know, they just have not, we're very insulated from these conflicts, and the reality is that a very small percentage of the American population, you know, engages in these conflicts, and... Um, you know, we don't share any of the sacrifice when it comes down to it. I mean, you know, you could argue several trillion dollars that we spent across the region over the last, you know, 15, 15 years um, are sacrificed enough, but I, I don't think that most Americans um, really, like, appreciate that in a, a tangible way, and you know, so it's, I think it's going to take more 
Well, that's that's the yeah. project we've got to work on. Uh, if if if, yeah, if I agree, if, if intelligent people, if humanists in the United States would care about peace in the world as much as Mike Pence cares about bringing Jesus back, uh, we would have a we would have a better foreign policy. Um, we've been speaking with Thomas Bonomo, who is the Humanist Studies Coordinator with the American Humanist Association. Uh, Thomas, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a non-profit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.